I'd like for you to turn to the Gospel of John, to the 15th chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. And then I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hosea, chapter 10. And just put your finger there and hold the place because I want to uh, do something that's pretty difficult in hermeneutics, and that is to take two passages of Scripture and lay them side by side in contrast. This week, can I get this a little more volume? This week, um, in the disciple now, I understand this is their theme, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so I want to um, kind of build on that in this um, final service of the Disciple Now weekend, or this Sunday morning service. If you'll notice the last words of the 14th chapter, you, you'll notice, you'll, you'll recognize that what Jesus said in chapter 14 and what He said in chapter 15 were spoken at two different places. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Come with me this morning, and we're going to leave a little up a room where Jesus has met with His disciples. And they're headed now out to the Garden of Gethsemane where all alone He will pray. And as He makes His way down the, toward the Kidron Valley and up toward Gethsemane, He probably passes by the great temple. The Passover is at hand and on this very night at midnight, the high priest would go and open the gates of the temple so worshipers could go into the courts. And as he came along to the gate of the temple, he noticed what was Israel's, the, the, the temple gate's distinctive glory, and that was Israel's symbol, the vine, emblazoned upon the temple gate. And it may be as he stood there and saw that vine, the symbol of Israel, he did what he often did, in that he called up something close by, very familiar, to teach a tremendous lesson. And so with his finger pointing to the vine emblazoned on the temple gate, he said, I am the vine, the true. I am the true Israel. I am what God meant for all of his people to be. I am an example of God's dream for every man. And you are the branches. You're a part of me. So therefore, you're the true Israel. And you are to be what God has always dreamed for his people. Young people, you are the vine. He is the vine. You are the branches. That is, you are to be everything that God has always dreamed for His people. Now, the vine as a symbol of Israel was familiar to Jesus and to His disciples. It arose out of a song of Asaph, which became a hymn in the temple sung every time they worshipped. It's now Psalm 80. 
Isaiah employed the vine as he began his song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5. And Jeremiah talked about Judah, the nation, as a degenerate vine. And Ezekiel uses the vine as the symbol of Israel in four remarkable lessons in his book. But now I want you to look at this fascinating verse, this fascinating passage in Hosea 10. Israel is a luxuriant, a degenerate vine. He produces fruit for himself. The more his fruit, the more altars he made, pagan altars. The richer his land, the better he made the sacred pillars, the sacred shrines, the godless shrines. Their heart is faithless. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their sacred pillars. Now I want you to, with me in your mind, I want you to lay alongside this discourse of Jesus in chapter 15, this passage in Hosea, and I want you to understand that what we have is a contrast between what we are to be and what we are. What God dreamed and desired for Israel and what Israel was, really. And there is a remarkable, awesome contrast. And from that contrast, some truths emerge. The first is this, that as strange as it seems, it is possible for us to miss God's purpose for our life. Israel was a luxuriant vine who produced fruit for himself. It is possible for us to miss God's purpose for our life. Now, what is God's purpose for us, for our lives? I mean, what is our reason for being? As kids ask sometimes, why am I here in the first place? Well, the only reason for our being and the only purpose for our being is that we might bear fruit. Now, what does it mean to bear fruit? Well, fruit is the outward expression of the inward life. I don't know too much about trees. I grew up in West Texas, and there was just one tree. That was a mesquite. I am a, an authority on mesquites. But if I went out into the woods, I probably couldn't tell you one tree from the next. But I do know something about fruit. And if I, was, if I uh, happened to be walking in an orchard, and I saw only leaves and bark, I wouldn't know one fruit tree from the next. But if I saw fruit on it, I would know. I mean, I'm dumb and stupid. But if I saw apples hanging on an apple tree, I've got to uh, conclude that that indeed is an apple tree. For the fruit is the outward expression of the inward life. Now, what is the inward life of a believer? The inward life of a believer is Jesus. So that our reason for being, God created us and recreated us in order that Jesus might have a body in which to live and reveal himself, the outward expression of the inward reality. That's why God put Adam and Eve in the garden in the first place. He placed Adam and Eve in the garden in order that they might be an extension of his presence, an expression of his personality, and an exhibition of his power. And something happened in the garden that defeated that purpose. It's called sin. And when that purpose was lost, their purpose in life was lost. Let me give you a visible, seeable illustration. The purpose of this watch is to mark time. And some people, you know, from what I hear, wonder if it works, you know, this watch. The purpose of this watch is not 
you know, just to be beautiful on my wrist, even though it's beautiful. And it's not just to keep a little strip there from sunburning like it does. The purpose of this watch is to mark time. But if something happens to the inner mechanism of this watch and it no longer can keep accurate time, it's no longer useful. It's lost its purpose. Now, the purpose of man in the garden was to be an extension of God's presence an expression of God's personality, an exhibit of God's power, and sin destroyed that purpose. It was lost to God. And so God sent Jesus into the world, an extension of His presence, an expression of His personality, an exhibition of His power. And that, my friend, is why you were create, recreated in order that Jesus might live in you and live through you and express the purpose of God for your life that you might bear fruit. Now when you lay these two passages side by side, you see a remarkable difference. And that difference and that paradox, that, that uh, uh, conflict is present in all in this room this morning among all of us. First of all, there is a difference in direction. It said that Israel produced fruit for himself. He lived for himself. Their lives were centers of selfishness and self-centeredness. And they lived for themselves. And everything they did and in every decision they made was a decision based upon what they wanted and what they desired. And the message of the prophet was that God has placed His resources at your disposal, not that you might consume them upon yourself, but that you might pass them on to others. Israel took the benefits of God and consumed those benefits upon themselves when indeed they were given in order to be passed on to someone else. And Jesus said, that the direction of a person's life is not to be lived for self, but for the glory of God. And he says that in verse 8. So that if your purpose is to bear fruit, the priority of your life is that God might be glorified. Now I ask you this question. What reason in your life is God being glorified? His paycheck from his employer and he says, God has made this money available to me. How can I take this money and be steward, uh, steward of it so that God can get maximum glory. And the young person says, God has gifted me with these talents and these abilities and these gifts. Now how can I invest my life, not so that it will benefit me, but how can I invest my life so that God can get maximum glory? There's a difference here, you see, between the direction of one's life. You have no right, young people, to make the decision of your life so that it will benefit just self. And there's a difference in demand. God said, Israel produces fruit for himself. And Jesus said, we're to bear fruit to the glory of God. And there's a, there's a world of difference between producing and bearing. Now watch this. The Hebrew word for produce in Hosea 10 is a word that means to set in line and it means literally to make ends meet. And everybody here this morning who is a wage earner and the head of a house knows how difficult it is to make ends meet. As a matter of fact, it takes everything you've got and more to make ends meet. Now Jesus said, apart from me you can do nothing. And what he's saying is this, 
that the choice of your life is yours. That is, you can live in union with Christ and you can abide in Jesus Christ in your life or you can choose not to do that. That's your choice. But if you choose not to join your life to Jesus Christ and abide in Him, then you're on your own. You've got to make ends meet. It means that when sorrow comes in life, and come it will, you're on your own. It means that when burdens come in your life, not in single file, but in battalion, you're on your own. It means that when the problems that bear down upon your shoulders that are so heavy you can hardly bear them, just remember that if you choose to live your life apart from God, you're on your own to do it. On the other hand, he said, if you choose to abide in me, then the demand is no longer on you. The demand is on me. It's a fantastic and thrilling thing that every demand of my life that's made upon my life, if I'm living in vital union with Jesus Christ, is not a demand made on me. It's a demand made upon Christ who lives in me. And all I have to do is just to abide in Him. Now what does it mean to abide in Christ? Well, I think it means two things. I, mean, I think it means the, the cessation of effort. Strength is not necessary for abiding anywhere. As a matter of fact, the only condition for abiding is weakness. So that I can abide in this pulpit all day long without exerting any strength or energy. It takes strength to get out of the pulpit. So that abiding in Jesus Christ is the cessation of your effort and, and the acceptance of His effort. So that is making my life available to God so that God can live His life in me. It's what the Son says to the earth. Abide in me. You just be there and I'll fill you with warmth and light. It's what the air says to the lungs. You just open yourself up to me and I will fill you. It's what the ocean says to the channel. Just clear the way and twice every day I will fill you. It's just make yourself available to me. And that's the key for bearing fruit. And the key to bearing much fruit is the intensifying of our abiding in Him. How do you bear much fruit? How do you incre increase your fruit bearing? By getting more branches? By increasing your religious activity? You know, from pulpits, from the time I was old enough to understand what it meant to be a Christian, I have, had, I have heard over and over again that the way to please God and the way to be a good Christian is to increase religious activity. The way you bear much fruit is not by increasing the branches, but by healthier branches. That's why there is a pruning. You get more sap into the branch, you get more fruit. You get more of the life of Christ into your soul. You get more of Christ's conduct and speech so that you move not from the circumference to the center. You move from the center to the circumference and you intensify your abiding in Christ. Now that's not passivity because sometimes it's easier to try to produce fruit than it is to try to bear fruit because in order to bear fruit, you've got to deal directly with God and you've got to straighten up your life. And repentance is involved in the intensity of abiding in Christ so He can live His life out and through you. But I can promise you this. 
that the fruit you produce, that is, what you try to accomplish in human effort, is temporary and lost, but what you bear is permanent. You know how to tell the success of a revival meeting? Not at the end of the revival meeting week, next year, after the revival. Let me tell you how to measure the success of a Disciple Now weekend. You won't measure the success of a Disciple Weekend by the number of kids you had in Disciple Weekend or how soon they went to bed, how much they memorized or learned. You'll measure the success of this Disciple Now Weekend next year because the fruit that we bear as we learn to make ourselves available to Christ who lives in us is permanent fruit. It's permanent fruit. And I suppose that every kid at some time or another, has said to me, and, and, and there's this kind of a, 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 you know, agony, there's sweat in this, they'll say to me every time, I want you to help me to understand how that I can take this excitement and this enthusiasm and this feeling of being right with God, how I can take that on out next year and, and the next week and the next month and the next year on the, on the high school campus. I want to know how I can continue well, the way there is permanent fruit is by intensifying your abiding in Christ, that is, the cessation of your effort, effort and the acceptance of His effort and letting Him live His life in you, dealing directly with Him. There's a second truth that emerges from this text, and it's this, that the sin of Israel, the sin of us, the sin of the luxuriant vine is the sin of the privileged. I want you... I want, I don't know whether you noticed it or not. There's an there's a awful paradox in this Hosea passage. He said the more fruit they got, they produced, the more altars they built, pagan altars. And the richer their land, the more pagan shrines they erected. That's such a paradox. You would think that the more God blessed the nation, the more they would look to God. But that's not the way it works. The paradox seems that the more God blessed the nation, the more they forgot Him. And the more He prospered them, the more they ignored Him and denied Him. And the more God dealt in their life, the more they forgot God and became pagan. Look around you. The sin of the privileged is the greatest sin for two reasons. First of all, because it is a sin against love. That's what Hosea is about. The book of Hosea is about a man whose wife left him for prostitution. I mean, how could this woman leave a husband who loved her? How could she do that? How could she leave the security of her home and her children and go off into prostitution? That was the question that haunted Hosea. And he plummeted the depths of iniquity trying to find the answer. You understand, of course, that Gomer, his wife, represents the nation. And Hosea represents God, so that the grief of God was this. How could the nation become adulterous, turn their back on me, when I have blessed the nation so? How can we? Young people, you're the most privileged people that has ever lived. You and I are the most privileged people that have that have lived on planet earth. God has blessed us in ways almost immeasurable and unfathomable ways. God has blessed us 
How in the world can a man take the blessing of God, turn his back on it, and use the very blessing of God as a means to prostitute himself? The sin of the privilege is the greatest sin because it is the sin against opportunity. You see, it's one thing to fail when you have little opportunity to succeed. It's another thing to fail when you have every opportunity to succeed. One of the things that always distressed me when I was a kid in high school trying to be, a, be an athlete is that we had one guy here who had all of the talent and the abilities and the gifts that a, that a, that a young athlete could ever hope to have and no desire and no discipline and, 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 and no interest. And on the other hand, you had this guy over here who had little talent, little ability, just wasn't gifted at all. And he had this tremendous desire, this, this burning desire to be an athlete, but little opportunity. It's one thing to fail when you have opportunities unlimited. It's another thing to fail when you have little opportunity. Let me tell you something. The opportunities to be, to become what God has dreamed for people to become are unlimited today. You grow up in a Christian home. You have a full-time uh, staff person who ministers to you. You have almost unlimited resources of teaching and training. You have the support of a congregation. You have a sermon on, preached from every corner. And this is what Jesus is talking about when he said, Unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be demanded. It's one thing to fail when you have every opportunity to succeed. It's the greatest sin. It's the greatest sin. What a tragedy that if out of this group that sits before me this morning, there is a single one of you that does not become everything that God wants you to become because you have every opportunity to do it. There's one final thought from this text. It's the clue as to why a nation or an individual would not become everything that God dreamed. Why a, brand, why a vine becomes degenerate, lives only for itself. What is the clue? Well, he said in the Hosea passage, he said it's because their heart is faithless. The King James says divided. It's the Hebrew word shalag. It's an interesting word. You can have a ball just doing a study of that word. The word is, refers to the little round smooth stones that was used in ancient times for gambling. Like dice today, you know. And they take these stones called the shalag and they would roll them. And, and, and how they would... Uh, you know, roll, how they would turn up would be, you know, how the gamble came out. And it's intriguing when you apply that to the, to the Hosea passage. What God is saying is this. Israel's problem is that she's gambling with me. God said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I'm going to gamble. But he didn't really mean that. I'm going to take that gamble. God said, Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. 
down in the inner part of my heart, I'm going to gamble. I can get by with sowing to the wind. God says, I give you ten rules for life. You take these rules and you keep them. You break these rules and they will break you. And the nation said, we're going to gamble that God didn't really mean what he said. In the inner part of our lives, in the inner part of the nation of Israel, there was this gamble that God wouldn't hold to his word. And these little stones were stones that kids used in playing games. Kind of like uh, kids will roll dice or whatever and play in their games. And, and so they'd take these little stones, and it was a kid's game, and they'd toss them on the boards and play with them. It's intriguing, fascinating when you take that and you apply it to Hosea's passage. And this is what he says, kids. He says, you can't play games with God. You can't play games with God. When he said, hey, way back in his Decalogue, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He meant it. And the whole thrust of Scripture is on the fact that God wants all of you or none. Jesus said to the young ruler, he said, there is one thing that stands between you and me. Now you go and sell that so that I can be the only thing in your life. And to the woman who was cumbered about with much caring, Jesus said, there is just one thing that's needful. And the Apostle Paul said, this one thing I do, because it's apparent that God wants you totally. You can't play games with it. And so God knows that's true with all of us. God knows these little games we play with Him. It's called church. And so we do a number on, the, on our business, in our businesses. We do a job on somebody in the week and we come on church, in church on Sunday morning and play games with God. And out there in the community where we are, where people know us and see us, we're one thing, we're another thing. On Sunday, we play games with God. It's a serious and dangerous experience. Fenelon was right when he said, you can't half belong to God. It was said of St. Francis of Assisi, when he gave himself totally to God, silver and soul, he began to sing and dance in the streets. And Samuel Shoemaker once said, Everybody sooner or later has to come, has to make a choice. He has to choose between the pain of a divided heart and the pain of a crucified self. And it just may be that at the conclusion of this disciple weekend, it's time to make the choice between the pain of a divided heart and the pain of a crucified self. How serious is God about your discipleship? He's this serious, he said. If any man comes after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And that word deny means that I have to choose against self and I have to consent to my death. Are you that serious about it? Or is this a game we play? I ask you, are you really this serious about following God? Or is it a game? I wonder one time, I heard one time about a man who trained Arabian horses 
a rigorous training exercise that took weeks. And the last part of that exercise, he would take them out into the desert, these tremendous animals, and he would starve them for three days. They went three days without water. And these magnificent horses starving for water at the end of the third day, the fourth day, he brought them out where they could see water and he turned them loose. And these animals would race toward the water just ready to plunge in. And just as they got to the, to the edge of the water, he blew the whistle, which meant they were to stop. And these magnificent animals starving for water, three days without water, would stand there in the presence of it, with it right at their feet, and they would tremble. And the ones who refused to drink passed the test. And those were the ones he chose. It's no accident that God looked down at Israel and she flunked the test. And he put her aside. And he said, I am the true vine. And you are the branches and the people I want, I'll use, I'll choose are the people who will sell themselves out to me and will become totally obedient to me and who will give up what they desire and thirst for in order to please me. Is there anybody here who would make that kind of choice? It's not a bad choice. Because if you make that choice and you make yourself available to Him, He makes available to you all that's necessary for you to become everything God wants you to be. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank You that we know what we should not be. But we're most grateful that we know what we are to become. And we know the price it cost. We know the, the requirement. And that is to cease all activity, human effort, and so submit to you and your effort that you could live your life in us in fullness. Lord, I pray that there will be some of us who will make that choice today to abide in Christ, to leave behind the past and the world, to follow Jesus. I pray this for your sake, for the sake of a dying world for our sake. There are three invitations. Look this way, please. I'm going to ask you this morning if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. God has made Him available to you. And He's made salvation, eternal life available to your faith, to your acceptance. I'm going to ask you in a moment 
If you've never for the first time accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, to come receive Him. To begin this morning to follow Christ. I'm not asking you to join, have you joined the church or have you been baptized? But have you given your heart and life to Jesus Christ in an initial experience of salvation? I'm going to ask, secondly, that those of us who feel God leading us to, to join the church, God's church, to become a part of this fellowship to come on promise of letter by statement. And then I'm going to ask these young men who have come to be with these kids this weekend, if they'll come and stand here. And some of you young people might want to come this morning just to the person that's been in your group and just tell him, I want to rededicate my life to Jesus Christ. I want to make myself totally available to God, submit my heart and life to Him. And I want to bear fruit. I want to be the outward expression of the inward life so that Jesus can be seen in me and the fruit I bear be permanent. You just come and say, I want to make, it, I want to make a new step today. Would you, be, would you be willing to do that? So as we stand to our, seat, to our feet, these guys are going to come and you come. Whatever reason God would lead you, we invite you to come. Come on.